You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Medical Myths. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Over the years, we've covered quite a few medical myths, including electromagnetic hypersensitivity, patent medicines, the efficacy of homeopathy, iridology, and chiropractic, and several aspects of forensic science that turned out to be bunk. Today, we're adding to that list. Content warning on today's episode, uh, Lauren's segment covers some uh, topics about death and dying, so uh, you might want to skip that segment if that's going to cause you some trouble. And I'm going to be talking about the fact that sex happens. Today I'll be giving a primer on anthroposophic medicine, Lauren will be talking about the process of medicalization, Laura will be dispelling some myths about things that go in your mouth, (laughs) maybe we need a content (laughs) warning for that one too, No. (laughs) and we'll end the show with a lighthearted game about sexually transmitted infections. So let's get to it! Anthroposophic medicine teaches that good health is only achieved through the alignment of three spiritual bodies. The etheric body, that's an individual's life force, the astral body, the higher forces of the soul, and the I, or the divine spark, that separates humans from subhumans. The I, like the letter I, or E-Y-E? The letter I. The I, I. Yeah. By contrast, illness is thought to be the result of karmic destiny, spiritual impurities resulting from sins committed in past lives. Essentially, it's your fault that you're sick because you were a bad person, and suffering is a means by which to absolve yourself of sin. Scientology? This goes far beyond the typical blame-the-victim mentality uh, common to alternative medicine, where, uh, you know... If the medicine didn't work, it's uh, it's because you didn't do it right. Because anthroposophic medicine maintains that medical treatment can actually harm the patient by interfering with their karmic healing. When administering treatment, an anthroposophic doctor must consider four aspects of the individual. Spirit, soul, life, and matter. Treatments are typically limited to counseling, massage, artistic expression, and therapeutic eurythmy, a form of artistic movement that bears some similarities to yoga and tai chi, and allows for the, quote, reintegration of body, soul, and spirit. Sounds like a nice relaxing summer camp. (laughs) Uh, When medicines are provided, they are often homeopathic in nature, diluted to the point where they contain no active ingredient at all. What's the difference between soul and spirit? Are we getting there? I, you know, okay, so (laughs) I was not going to get into it, but I pulled up a a paper written by Andrew Weil, who is really into this. He's got uh, an enviable beard, but just about everything else about him is terrible. Why are they always named Andrew? So therapeutic approaches that aim to heal the spirit 
involve activation of cognitive and spiritual forces, where those aiming to heal the soul involve improvement of emotional functions. So spirit seems to be more cognitive and uh, soul is more affective. Coping strategies, biography work, um, meditation, spirituality, uh, and religion are all things that heal the spirit, while uh, eurythmy, artistic uh, endeavors like painting, poetry, and music, and psychotherapy all aim to heal the soul. So Bob Seger was right? <sighs> God damn it. <laughs> You said you weren't going to get into it, and then you did. I think you brought this on yourself. (laughs) So here are some medical myths promoted by anthroposophic medicine. Myth one, the heart doesn't pump blood. What? What? That's like the first thing we learned about the body. (laughs) Instead, blood is propelled with its own biological momentum. No! What? They don't even have flagella. (laughs) <laughs> yeah all those erythrocytes we, we, just little uh little flagellar tails what what's the heart for then love oh right that's your love organ <laughs> you know it, it, it's funny but that is they literally teach that the heart is involved in emotional processing interesting myth two cancer is the result of an imbalance in an individual's organizing forces that can be cured by an infusion of mistletoe Wait, that's poison. (laughs) Good thing it's a homeopathic infusion. (laughs) Myth three. Vaccination, quote, interferes with karmic development and the cycles of reincarnation. There's the Andrew. Furthermore, these inoculations will influence the human body in a way that will make it refuse to give a home to the spiritual inclinations of the soul. Great, as long as it also refuses to give a home to measles, I'm sold. Myth four, cognition is not properly a physical process, but a paranormal one. Quote, The brain and nerve system have nothing at all to do with actual cognition. They are only the expression of cognition in the physical organism. The truth is that the brain and nervous system are connected with thinking cognition only because they always shut themselves off from human functioning, thereby allowing thinking cognition to unfold. Okay, so... Why am I talking about a medical pseudoscience you've never heard of uh, on a show that's supposed to be about medical myths? Well, first, it's uh, delightfully silly, but uh, more properly because this medical system has actually had a disproportionately wide reach, and in a stealthy kind of way. Anthroposophy's inventor and chief proponent was Rudolf Steiner, the Austrian mystic who also gave us biodynamic agriculture, which Ashlyn talked about way back on episode 100, our silly pseudoscience special. But more importantly, Steiner also invented the Waldorf education system, used today in hundreds of schools in North America and many more in Europe and uh, increasingly throughout Asia. There are about 20 Waldorf schools in Canada, mostly concentrated in BC, Ontario, and Quebec. Uh, There are none in Manitoba at the moment. And then there's like Waldorf dolls that are really popular everywhere. So Waldorf schools, or Steiner schools, were founded in 1919, and they take their name from the Waldorf Astoria Cigarette Company in Stuttgart, Germany, whose owner asked Steiner to design a school for his employees' children. The focus of Waldorf education uh, skews heavily toward physical activity, imaginative play, and social education, 
while entertainment media like television and the internet are discouraged. The arts play a central role in Waldorf schools. Music is present throughout, and younger students learn visual arts like painting and sculpting, and crafts like knitting and crochet, while older students learn woodworking, sewing, doll making, and even bookbinding. I mean, honestly, if we stop the segment here, this sounds pretty good so far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but let's look at the philosophy behind Waldorf schools a little bit. Steiner was insistent that reading and writing, along with other more formal academic pursuits, were not to be introduced until students were about seven years old, believing that abstract intellectual activity could adversely affect a child's development if introduced too early. Waldorf schools are organized around three stages that each last seven years, modeled after Steiner's belief that human development was governed by seven-year spiritual cycles, each imbued with the essence of a different sphere. Children up to seven years of age were influenced by the moon, while Mercury held sway between seven and 14 years, and Venus governed 14 to 21-year-olds. This is wild. Well, I want to know where the sun comes in, because usually if you have one stage that's the moon, you don't then go to the planets? Who knows? None of it has to make any sense. Proponents point out that Steiner's stages are similar to Jean Piaget's universal stages of development. This claim is... Um, Weak. Piaget's stages were testable material on the MCAT, and while I can't reveal whether I was actually tested on them, I will say <laughs> that I'm glad I took the time to study them. The comparison between Piaget and Steiner seems to be... I feel like that's quite the line there, Jim. <laughs> Both Piaget and Steiner propose concrete developmental stages... And that's it. <laughs> I mean, these stages differ in number. They're divided at different age ranges. They focus on different aspects of development. And any similarity between the stages can be explained by the fact that both men had, you know, seen children before. <laughs> and some grasp on generally when they learn certain things. And while Piaget's model is influential in developmental psychology, it's hardly unchallenged. So a comparison to Piaget does not mean that the Waldorf divisions uh, make any sense at all. Many of Steiner's anthroposophic beliefs still hold sway in modern Waldorf schools. Students are taught about karmic reincarnation, eurythmy, and the spiritual underpinnings of everyday life. In early years, teachers are encouraged to classify students based on the classical four temperaments and adjust to their instruction according to Steiner's beliefs that, quote, Cholerics are risk-takers, phlegmatics take things calmly, melancholics are sensitive and introverted, and sanguines take things lightly. Wow. You may notice I haven't mentioned science education yet. <laughs> um, perhaps surprisingly... When tested on mathematical ability and their understanding of the process of scientific inquiry, students of Waldorf schools tend to do quite well against match controls from other schools. Waldorf schools focus on observational inquiry-based learning that, at least theoretically, aligns well with the methods of science. However, a study conducted by California State University outlined several pseudoscientific theories that pervaded the Waldorf education system, concluding that the curriculum was steeped in magical thinking. When we get into the specific findings of science, things start to go off the rails. Some theories that are promoted in American Waldorf schools include various 19th century ideas about the lost continents of Lemuria and Atlantis. Oh boy. Still? That the, four, that the four kingdoms of nature are mineral, plant, animal, and man, 
and that, and that animals, at least in some cases, evolved from humans. Whoa. Oh my goodness. Uh, and that human beings are incarnated into, quote, soul qualities that manifested themselves into various animal forms. So th- this goes far beyond the kind of factual inaccuracy that can be corrected by issuing some textbook errata. It, it betrays a completely unscientific approach to knowledge, uh, which makes sense, since Steiner's esoteric anthroposophic belief system is itself uh, one of many responses to Enlightenment rationalism. Noah Berlatsky, a media critic whose son attends a Waldorf school, reports that he has frequent arguments with his son about whether gnomes exist, because <laughs> apparently his teachers are quite insistent that they do. Just... I feel like this still belongs on a show about different education systems rather than medical myths, though, Jim. So it's easy to laugh off gnomes and Lemurians, but these beliefs can take us to some pretty grim places. I'm going to quote here from Sharon Lombard, whose daughter was enrolled in a Waldorf school. When I learned that black and brown crayons were not permitted in the kindergartens, I asked my daughter's teacher how it would be possible for African Americans to draw themselves. The teacher told me that she would show the child how to smudge their color from an assortment of other colors. I remarked that it seemed racist. What was going on? I later learned from reading Steiner that black is the spiritual image of the lifeless, and that dark skin is a sign of spiritual inferiority. Indeed, Steiner believed that people of color could, through good karmic works, be reincarnated as members of the higher races. Waldorf schools, getting back to medicine, are common sites of outbreaks of vaccine-preventable illness, like measles and chickenpox. In fact, the government of the United Kingdom has classified them as high-risk populations. In accordance with Steiner's beliefs, vaccinations seem to be strongly discouraged, with Waldorf schools in regions where vaccines are not mandatory, or where exemptions are permitted, These schools report vaccination rates in the single digits. Wow. Lombard reported that her association with the Waldorf School and its philosophy began to erode her confidence in science-based medicine. When her daughter fell ill, the school connected her with an anthroposophic doctor. Quote, A seemingly gentle and caring man entered the small room and listened attentively as I tearfully disclosed my family's predicament. Our nine-year-old was gravely ill, depressed, and had lost a lot of weight because she refused to eat. The anthroposophic doctor made a diagnosis. My child had lost the will to live. He announced one of the potential cures. We were to give our daughter red, yellow, and orange crayons to color with. I looked at my husband in disbelief. When the doctor instructed us to make the sign of the flame out of arum cream over my child's heart at bedtime, I was dumbfounded. After paying him his fee of $50, we left the school, and I turned to my husband and said with certainty, we are in a real live cult. (laughs) What year was this? Uh, That account was published in, I believe, 2004. That is scary. So is anthroposophic, like, human thinking? Is that the root of... What is sophic? Uh, It's not sapphic. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's uh, the the Greek root for to think. Right. Um, I don't know. Um, I didn't look it up and I closed my web browser so that uh, we would have more RAM available for the recording. Um, (laughs) But uh, anthroposophy was, it was one of many 
esoteric belief systems that um basically since the renaissance but but especially in the uh, especially since the 18th and 19th centuries uh you had um a bunch of people who felt trapped between you know puritanical religion and the uh the new enlightened rationalism mm-hmm. and it's like the third way basically <laughs> these esoteric belief systems that kind of pull from everywhere kind of a rejection of uh, of what was seen at the time as like a, a one or the other choice that's a part of the Waldorf schools that I never knew about. I knew a little bit about Waldorf schools. I toured one once, actually, when I was uh, living as an exchange student. The family I was living with was a very lovely family <laughs> that really believed in homeopathy and the like. Oh, boy. So, I mean, not knowing anything, I went to the Waldorf school and they had all the dolls and all the wooden toys and everything was very, like, neutral and natural and and that. Um, And I had no idea that there was any of that kind of stuff going on there based on the description and what I was being told. And and really, they said nothing about gnomes. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing at all. They don't hit you with that till the second cycle. Uh, Right. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, you know, once you reach OT3... (laughs) Well, I mean, I just thought it was like Montessori, like, you know, you play with stuff and learn by interacting with cute dolls. And measles vectors. I I had no idea it was (laughs) wild. Yeah, I I thought it was just another one of those types of things, which in some ways it is. Yeah. Yeah, it takes it to a whole new level. From its creation in the 1880s, through the 1920s, Listerine as a product had an identity crisis. <laughs> There's a boom statement right there. Consumers were told it could be used for all sorts of things. A pre-surgical body wash, a floor scrub, a gonorrhea treatment, and a dental germificant. Then the owners of the company came across a long-disused Latin word, halitosis. And as everyone knows, quid quid Latin dictum set altum vitator, or in this case, Quid quid Latin dictum sit altum medicinae. <laughs> Jim got it. So armed with this fancy new-to-them word that literally means bad breath, Listerine execs started out an advertising campaign warning young women that they would never lend a husband due to the terror of halitosis. In the span of a few years, Listerine became known as a medical cure for the germs that cause bad breath, and was an over-the-counter fix for your socially embarrassing medical problem. Broadly speaking, medicalization is the process by which human conditions and problems can be defined and treated as medical issues to be solved or put off or prevented or treated. Like in the Listerine case, some are created by making a problem for your ready solution, but others are created by our reliance on the medical industries for what used to be home-based events. Childbirth and death are two that spring to mind. I'm not saying that everyone should go give birth without any wellness care, or that people should only live to the ripe old age of died in childbirth. (laughs) 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 Good though, I like it. (laughs) It's not my joke, but I had to use it. Here in Manitoba, we have a lack of midwives, and the only available choice for some people is to follow the medical model of childbirth, up to and including the machine that goes ping! even for those who have a completely uneventful pregnancy and birth. As with everything, this is a matter of social privilege. People in more affluent socioeconomic structures have more access to choices 
both whether to have or more or less interventionalist pregnancy and birth, and also the means to find professionals to help or to support these decisions. On this level, medicalization can be a form of social control, keeping underprivileged people away from all avenues that may be open to people with more social privilege. In Western social science, medicalization is one of a long chain of controls used to keep down those with less privilege. Once, a personal failing may have been classified as a sin, and it would fall under the realm of the church. Later, that same failing may have been classified as a crime and followed under the realm of the law. Now, the same failing, I do use that term with the greatest of irony, can be classified as a sickness and fall under the realm of the hospital to heal and correct or to categorize, pathologize, and in the most extreme cases, tuck away from society. In all three models, the outcome was pronounced by someone of a high enough social or economic strata to become a priest, a lawyer, or a doctor. I could continue on with medicalization as social control. Hell, we could do an entire show, or even a series of shows, breaking down into the finer points. And we might in the future. <laughs> Let's wait until I'm a bit more steeped in it, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, in the show notes, a complete article by Tiago Correa from the University of Lisbon. He does a very deep dive into the subject and its consequences. He's doing his postdoc in social control with medicalization. Cool. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. a really excellent read, but I do recommend having another tab open with pictures of kittens or puppies or baby ducks or something because <laughs> you're going to need it. That said, I have no good segue from medicalization as social control to my primary focus of the segment. This aspect of the topic was too important to ignore, though. <laughs> what I really wanted to discuss today was the medicalization of death. The only thing you are guaranteed in this life is that you will die. So why are we so hell-bent to both push it as far away as possible and to trade in quality of life for quantity of life? Mm -hmm. I've given a lot of thought to how I will die. That sounds morbid. Please note that I have dysthymia, which is a deep depression that will never get better. So thoughts of my own death are somewhat of a comfort to me. I want to die at home, or at least on my own terms. What I don't want is to be kept alive by any means necessary, with tubes and machines and people checking my vital signs every 30 minutes. If you want that, I don't want to deny it to you, but it's not for me. I have a co-worker who reminds me at least once per year that I am not allowed to let her family pull the plug on her no matter what. I have to jump in between them and the plug. <laughs> <laughs> the one plug. Yeah. <laughs> and Ashlyn can think off the top of her head which co-worker that is. <laughs> There's a school of thought that classifies the medicalization of dying as traditional palliative care. And that's sort of how the palliative model was built up. It's a model where we don't prolong life, but we ease pain. But we are therefore usually prolonging the process of dying. Looking at the eligibility requirements for Canada's Medical Assistance and Dying Bill, even they require several forms of radical prolongment of life to be tested. To finally be eligible, a person must meet these criteria. Have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. Be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability. Endure physical and psychological suffering that is intolerable. And their natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. Any assistance outside of these criteria can see the assistant charged with a crime. There have been more than a few cases since the bill was introduced where people have requested assistance in dying and a panel has refused, saying that they aren't close enough to death or they aren't in enough pain to warrant medical assistance in death. That is a bureaucratic medical decision made by doctors and hospital administrators who may not even be familiar with the person or their particular case. 
Not every person follows a prescriptive path towards death, and everyone should have a say when they are ready to go. Well, that idea of the panel, too, that opens up that huge bucket of worms of medical bias against who can feel what kind of pain when and whatnot. And so some people are probably far more likely to get approved than other people are. Amazingly, who would have thought? Bioethicist Howard Brody asserts that several healthcare professionals believe in a rescue fantasy, where they imagine themselves able to snatch a patient back from the brink of death and restore them to full health. Nothing in that fantasy is based on a harm reduction model. Thanks to media and stories of these hero doctors, this rescue fantasy is also prevalent in the greater public, and can result in believing that medical professionals are miracle workers who only failed to save a person from death due to negligence or outright malice. So that harms both the patient and the medical professionals. Mm-hmm. I get it. Death is scary. I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in any sort of world waiting after this one. For some people, the thought of not being is the most frightening thing that they can picture. For me, being kept alive past when my body is ready to go is even scarier. I'm, I'm really not familiar with how it's approached in other parts of the world and other cultures and that, but... I'm I'm very curious how like end of life is is treated even in the palliative care and and that the thought of washing a relative's body for preparation for the grave is very soothing to me the thought of taking care of someone one last time on their way out as a as part of the grieving process mm-hmm. and helping someone make that step it just makes so much sense to me uh, for a long time, I really wanted to get into um, good mortuary work. Yeah. Life took a different path, but it just makes so much more sense for the family to deal with it. And I know there's families who can't, and I know there's people without families. But I, I feel death is a community thing, and it shouldn't be shunted away medically. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, not on this topic, but in general, just the loss of community mm-hmm. in uh, in my own life and in the society in which myself and a lot of other people live, like some people have very tight knit communities and families and would still do that if it was socially acceptable, for example. Um, but that's our our sort of typical Western society is moving far, far away from that. And so you get estranged from all of these things that were normal and yeah. were part of that process that would help you heal. Yeah, like granddad's body lying in the parlor for two days so everybody could come to the home and it's not everybody has to go to a a separate place that's specifically for death. Death was a part of life. Death is a part of life and we need to recognize that. Yeah, and, and as you bring up to that idea that not everybody has a family, you know, we need a system that ensures that everybody has that dignity. And so mm-hmm. in a way, there, like there's part of that that somebody without a family – the medical system is playing a bit of that role, but they're not set up for that at all. No. And it's not actually giving that. Yeah, it's hard. I don't have any answers. I just no. have a real bummer of a segment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing to to think about as, as hard and terrifying mm-hmm. as it is for myself. So I find the idea of care being taken away with the possibility of, you know, living longer you know even that small possibility like i would want that but i also am familiar with like reading accounts from nurses and health professionals who say like 
the the lengths we go to for people are ridiculous and you know they would never want that for themselves so yeah i sort of teeter on the edge there yeah that that hero fantasy where people are like i can bring him back just keep pushing and then you end up with somebody who's in a lot more pain and maybe they're back but all of their ribs are broken and how long are they lasting there were some stats that i didn't put in my segment about how long people live in end-of-life situations after heroic measures and it's not long enough to for me to make that a choice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it's gonna it's gonna depend on a lot of things because Mm -hmm. there's those instances too where they live just long enough for their child to get there to say goodbye or something like that in which case you know for for the child they're probably like thank goodness they were brought back for that long. I could say that, whereas I would have missed it otherwise or something. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not, Yeah, I'm just saying, and like maybe that person was like, oh, I'm so glad I saw their face one more time and now I'm okay. I, I can't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't ask them, unfortunately. Yeah. But how often does that really happen, right? Like yeah. that's, uh, that's again, that's that sort of Hollywood corner case that mm-hmm. we all think is the reality, just like, you know, what we think of as all sorts of different things, but it's not what happens in most cases. Yeah, it's a big uncomfortable topic and we should talk about it more. I'm not just saying on the podcast, I'm saying as, as a society. society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to think that in the end, I would take the advice of whatever healthcare professional was there. And I, I think I would find it much easier to stop such measures on someone else rather than when I think about it being me. <laughs> and I'm the opposite. But <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you could never pull the plug on me. Never happen. Unless it was your choice. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, why we, that, that's why we have a clear directive. And we've already set up like wills and living wills. Yep. Today is my parents' 40th wedding anniversary, and as a anniversary gift, they're finally putting their wheels together. They've uh, never had them? Yikes. Wow. Joan, I know you're listening. Congratulations <laughs> on putting your wheels together. <laughs> oh, boy. We should update ours. <laughs> this is not on there yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. I, I'm curious, have you read any Becky Chambers? I have not. She has a trilogy called the Wayfarers Trilogy. It's a science fiction um, set in, you know, relatively far future. Uh, the first book is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and the, the, the first book focuses on, like, a plot, whereas the second is really focused on character. And the third seems to focus predominantly on a sense of place, building a setting. Which is interesting, and I don't know if that if, if that's just something I'm reading into it or or, or if that was intentional. But sounding sounds like writing exercises. Yeah, it kind of does. But like, I love I love all of the books, and they're they're they read quite differently. But in the third one, one of the main characters is a kind of a a death caretaker uh, on kind of a, a generation ship. Cool, um, basically, and uh, it. It addresses, I think, a lot of the things that that you're talking about. So I, I, I'd recommend, uh, I'd recommend those books. Good. I will have to take a look. For my medical myths, I thought I would talk about 
things related to eating, because, of course, in my profession, everything comes back to food or the stomach or the mouth or the gut or something like that. And there's a lot of myths when it comes to what should and shouldn't go into your body and and whatnot and what is and is not edible and that. So I thought I would... (laughs) As long as you have consent. (laughs) What did you say, Ashlyn? Rocks. 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 Oh, man, I saw... So long as you have pica. Oh, Jim! <laughs> don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you bite it in your mouth. Don't you stuff it in your face. Don't stuff it in your face. Though it might look good to eat. Though it might look good to eat. And it might look good to taste. And it might look good to taste. So I'm going to talk about two different myths here that are uh, pretty standard. One of them we've all heard for sure. And the other one, I think a lot of people have heard. It just makes my blood boil. So I really wanted to talk about it. So the first one is that it is very dangerous to swallow gum because it will stay in your stomach for seven years. <laughs> Maybe that's why I've gained so much weight. It's all the gum I all swallow. The gum. <laughs> all the gum. So I knew this was nonsense when I was like five. <laughs> it's it's a thing that I can't imagine that a lot of adults with, you know, well-rounded reasoning capacity really truly believe but i think it's a thing that a lot of people just sort of hear and take it in and keep it going and oh that's the reason why we don't swallow gum and keep going on with their day one of the things that i was wondering today as i was starting to research this whole myth is why is it seven years specifically why not six why not eight because seven is one of those magical numbers. That it's a just biblical number, and it comes full. up all the time. Exactly, it's because that's the number of years it actually stays in your stomach, Laura. <laughs> no, we just love our biblical numbers, even when we're applying them to uh, medical nonsense. It's also the number of bad years you get if you break a mirror. Exactly. Or exactly. Walk under a ladder. All of those things. Yes. <laughs> and it's the number of years after which you need to forgive all debt. Yes, that's a good rule. We should have kept that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's also the number of years when all, all your bones renew. Mm. You're a whole new person after seven years. Cool. Jem's going to let that slide. <laughs> Except for your, your neurons. They're there. They're with you forever. Apparently, I was just and reading your, something. muscle cells, actually. A lot of you is muscle. Well, then how do you build muscle mass in These adulthood? cells literally get, get larger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You have the same number of muscle cells as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Pro- okay. Probably more realistically at this point. It's been a long time since I've done anatomy, so I don't really remember that stuff. But wow, uh, your cells are swole. As I was looking things up, apparently there are parts of the brain, particularly in the hippocampus, that do renew some of the, the neurons in there, which is kind of cool. Cool. Yeah. A lot On of these, the whole, the whole, the brain doesn't, but not as hard and fast. As yes. Yeah. Anyway, back to gum. So no one really knows the origin of this myth. It's probably one of those things that just developed over time organically. Little bits and pieces were added in here, like the length of time. It probably varied a little bit depending on where you were and that, and it just became part of cultural folk folklore. Now, chewing gum has been around for several thousand years in one form or another. Um, Numerous older societies, particularly in the Americas, have chewed various types of gum-like substances um, for thousands of years. And these originated mainly from tree barks like birch and sapodilla trees. So the idea, the concept of a gum, something to chew on that is not a food stuff, but it's just thing to keep your mouth busy. And and oftentimes it uh, was also thought to have medicinal or um, hygienic purposes like breath freshening and that um, this is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time. 
Um, and one of the most well-known versions of this was chewed in Central America, and it was called chicle. Does that sound like yep. anything you've ever heard of? Uh-huh. A chiclet, perhaps? So um, I had never heard of chicle before, but as soon as I heard that, oh, of course, that's where chiclet comes from. Great. So uh, chewing gum, as we know, it became commercialized in the mid or it was developed into a more commercializable form in the mid 1800s and the first commercial products were available after the 1880s so you know it's a, got a century and couple decades um around as as widely available uh to consumers to understand the myth of this we need to know what gum is Does anybody know what goes into gum or what are the the main things that make gum gum like ancient gum or now gum like well the main tree resin <laughs> so resins are still a part of it. So there's three main types of chemicals that make gum gum. And then we've added other things over the years. So resins are one of them. Resins provide the chewiness. So so those tree barks there, like the sapodilla, the chicle and that, that's where that like the resins were. They gave the chewiness. Then there's elastomers, which provide the stretchiness and toughness of the gum. And then there are the waxes, which provide the softness of it so it doesn't get hard and just break into pieces there. So if you've got some of those really cheap gums that just kind of dry out and break up, they don't have enough waxes in them. And then we've added things like coloring, flavoring, sugar, sweeteners, those types of things over the years there. But those are the three main components. And of those three main components, none of those are really digestible by humans. And so that's what you need to know when it comes to gum here. Thinking on that, if things aren't digestible, there's always that question for people who aren't as familiar with anatomy or just don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Well, what happens to things that aren't digestible? And there's always that question, well, could it get stuck, right? And so that's where I think this myth really kind of grew out of. But when we, when gastroenterologists are, are asked about this and write about this, you know, the, the answer is very clear that Gum doesn't stay in your stomach, just like almost everything else that goes through, goes past your mouth and down your esophagus, it goes all the way through and comes out. The thing with gum is that because it's not digestible, it's really not changed all that much from the way that it went in. You know, the shape's a little different, but it's pretty much the same. But um, it really, it doesn't stay there. You know, one one paper I was reading, it was a gastroenterologist remarking that, you know, in all the years I've been reading radiographs, I don't see the gum. I should see people with full of gum all the time, and I am not seeing that if this myth was true. So because gum is not that well digestible, they say that it could take a little bit longer than some of your other foodstuffs to pass through the gut. So that's kind of reasonable. So instead of a few hours, maybe it's a couple of days, something like that. But so long as you're chewing your standard amount of gum, and if you swallow it, it should be fine. It shouldn't be an issue there. So my theory with this is that when gum became more popular and people started chewing a lot of it, there was this fear with it and it got linked with uh, bezoars. Are you guys familiar with bezoars? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So I just love that word. It is so funky looking and it's so different than most of our other words. And so it just draws me to it. So for anybody who isn't familiar, bezoars are basically a buildup of material that becomes too large to pass through the GI tract. You ever unclogged a drain? Yeah. <laughs> That's essentially it. Don't eat it. <laughs> they are primarily in the stomach because that has the most holding capacity, but they can occur in other parts of the GI tract as well. So they're not solely in the stomach. 
There's lots of different types of bezoars. They can be both organic and inorganic. So there's phytobezoars. These are the most common. And basically, this is made of plant materials there. It could be seeds, shells, skins, pits, just large pieces of the plant. Um, this accounts for about 40% of them, and they generally happen pretty quickly there. Are you talking particularly about bezoars in humans or yes, in Yes, I'm ruminants? talking in, in humans yeah, here. I know they're more common in ruminants. As far as I know, cows aren't chewing Wrigley's, so I think we're okay <laughs> with this myth. <laughs> but which ones can cure all poisons? Um, none, although apparently some of the types of mineral-based bezoars can help absorb arsenic out of the body or something because of a mineral exchange that happens. Ooh. I read that very briefly. I don't remember which paper, but apparently... <laughs> so in a couple of cases, maybe it might work, but I don't recommend you just going and finding a random bezoar and being like, this will cure my arsenic poisoning. It won't. So um, the reason Ashlyn brings that up is because bezoars were traditionally thought to be cures for poison. In fact, the word bezoar in English has, uh, has come to mean that in some contexts. Yeah, but there are generally a medical problem that does need to be dealt with. There are some side effects. Um, if they get large enough, they can cause um, gastrointestinal obstruction. They can cause ulceration, perforation, bleeding. You know, there's lots of things. It's generally bad. Total side note. There's this one type of bezoar called a diospyrobezoar that is one of the biggest or, or one of the most common types of phytobezoars, and it is due to the excessive consumption of unripe persimmon fruits. Weird. <laughs> so it's, it's specifically this type of fruit, and it's because unripe persimmons have a high concentration of tannins that fuse together that make it indigestible in the stomach. And so they will frequently see breakouts in areas where people have been eating a lot of these unripe persimmons there. I just thought it was really cool that it was just this one type. So phytobezars are some of the most common. The next most common, or the ones that a lot of people might think of when they think of human bezoars, are uh, trichobezars, which are made of mm. hair. Yes, everybody can stop pulling their hair now. It's generally due to the person chewing and consuming their own hair. These tend to develop over a long period of time, um, and they're actually pretty difficult to treat and, and get rid of. They usually require surgery, so they're pretty bad. And they're usually, this whole condition is usually linked with some psychiatric conditions and disorders for people. Unless you're a cat. Humans. We're talking humans. There's other types of bezoars, lactobezoar, uh, pharmacobezoars, um, and then bezoars made of foreign, completely inedible materials like paper, styrofoam, things like that as Ooh, well. like a wasp's nest. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Bezoars are quite uncommon, though. This is what's what we need to keep in mind. You know, a long time ago, they might have been a lot more common, um, especially when we didn't have when we had to forage for a lot more food and we had a lot more um, illnesses that we didn't have treatments for and things like that. But they're not common right now. They are a little bit more likely in people who have um, GI anatomy changes or like gastrointestinal illnesses or, like I said, some of those um, different psychiatric il illnesses or, or um, conditions and that as well. But, or eat persimmons. Or people who eat a lot of indigestible foods. But they're really not that common. So my guess here is that the whole gum thing linked in with this known buildup of materials in the stomach. And so we got this idea with it. And then the fact that we knew it was indigestible somehow those two things just mesh together. So there have been a couple of case reports where chewing gum has in fact contributed to bezoar formation or 
pseudo-Bezoar formation. Well, it just holds everything together. Right. So basically what happened, um, in, in a couple of the case reports, they found that um, one, in one case, the person had consumed a very large amount of sunflower seeds, including the shells, Ugh. as well as a big wad of gum. And so the shells got stuck in the gum and it became like a porcupine-like thing. So, no, gum can't stay in your stomach for seven years. If you had a huge amount of gum in a very short period of time and you swallowed all of it, there I guess there could be a risk that you could cause, you know, a blockage with that because it's just too much for your stomach to handle at once, especially if you had it with persimmons and sunflower seeds. Don't do that. So once in a while, you should switch to chocolate bars to try and get the golden ticket? There you go. Okay. But no, gum will not stay in your stomach for seven years. The next one that I hear all the time because I'm a dietitian and I work in diabetes is that people with diabetes can't eat carrots because they're too high in sugar. Yeah. Like this, yeah. All the freaking time. I am amazed. Like I carrots specifically. It this it is another one of those things. Sweet, I guess. Yes. So mm-hmm. it got it um, just like the gum thing, it got into the mythos and people, you know, this is the kind of thing I heard this I think even when my dad got diagnosed, which is more than 20 years ago or about 20 years ago now. And even then, I'm pretty sure it was sort of old and outdated because that's mm-hmm. what the science says. But even still, I'll be meeting people not too long ago and recently diagnosed. And they've heard that. They've looked it up on the internet and found it. I'm like, ah, damn it, internet. I mean, we love you, internet. Please keep listening. So I want to take a stab at this because this one drives me bananas. Just I will constantly- can't eat carrots. That's wild. I- all the time, I'll mention different vegetables. Oh, I can't have carrots. They're too high in sugar. But as soon as I tell them, well, corn is a grain. It's high in carbs. They look at me dumbfounded. They have never heard this information before. <laughs> but carrots are the thing that they cannot have. So where does this come from? Sort of like Jem said, carrots do have a bit of a sweet taste, particularly when we cook them. Um, so we infer that they're high in sugar, right? Maybe there's, like I said, some old information got out there, maybe some older carbohydrate measures like nutrient database tables or something like that. Um, Now, they do have a glycemic index of 71, which is high, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. And when you compare carrots to other vegetables, especially leafy green vegetables like lettuce or spinach or something, they do have more carbohydrates than those vegetables. So they are, they have more carbs than the almost no-carb vegetables. I want to get back to the glycemic index. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with this, the glycemic index is a measure of how much a specific portion of carbohydrates from a specific food will raise a person's blood sugar. And foods are then ranked on a table from lowest glycemic index, means it almost doesn't raise their blood sugar, to highest means it raises it very, very quickly. The references are usually white bread or sugar. Um, or, well, not sucrose, but glucose, um, depending on which table you're looking at. So glycemic index, what it does is it gives us an idea of how quickly certain carbohydrate foods will affect our blood sugar. Foods that have no carbohydrates are not on these tables, and that's another issue that I'll get to. But it's imperfect, and it's downright problematic when we're looking at using this in the context of mixed meals and days that have multiple meals in them. Which is pretty much all meals and all days. Exactly, right? So if we only ever ate one food at a time, 
it might be a good measure of things, but we rarely do that. And also, we're looking at foods that are matched for the amount of carbohydrate in them. So the portions of foods vary wildly. Right. So for something like white bread, you're slice you'd be looking at about 3 slices of white bread for this to get that 50 gram portion. For carrots, for 50 grams of digestible carbs, you need to have a pound and a half. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but most people are not eating a pound and a half of carrots at one sitting. I don't know. That peak of the market guy seemed pretty excited about those carrots. <laughs> I see you like carrots. Me too. Carrot muffins. Carrot cake. Carrots all buttered up and dilly. How about you? It might happen occasionally, all right? But for most people in most meals... That's not a comparable portion. I don't think I've ever eaten a pound and a half of carrots at once. That is a lot of carrots. Sure is. You hungry? Yeah, you'd have to eat this in a short period of time. We're not even talking about grazing on it through an entire day. We're talking at one 20-minute sitting. You'd have to eat a pound and a half of carrots. That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this is the thing that when people start touting the glycemic index... They don't think about how these things measure up. So yes, carrots have a glycemic index of 71 when you eat a pound and a half of them. When you eat a standard (laughs) one cup serving, it's going to be a lot less because there are not 50 grams of carbs in them and there's fiber in it compared to other things like that. Also, glycemic index varies greatly depending on the amount of protein and fat that you eat as well. So you take white bread, which is a glycemic index of 100, and you put butter on it. And the glycemic index drops considerably because fat slows down the carbohydrate digestion and absorption. So in the context of mixed meals, which is what most people are eating most of the time, that's going to change things. So this is why we don't want to just take that one measure of glycemic index and use it to say that carrots are bad for us. I went to a, a diabetes educator once that my doctor recommended that I go to. And she was like obsessed with measuring things with her thumb. She kept telling me over and over... Always eat the amount of fat equal to the size of your thumb with a meal of whatever, because that will help. And like, I understood what she was getting at, but the fact that she kept talking about a piece of fat the size of your thumb was like very weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I guess it's something that everybody has on them all the time, pretty much, but. (laughs) It is. It's a standard measure. (laughs) But yes. Yeah. You know, I guess you're just not a thumb learner. We'll, we'll get, we'll put it that way. Carrots are not the starchiest vegetables out there either. What is? There, There's a lot of other vegetables that are much higher in carbs that people don't think twice about. Okay. So for a cup of carrots, you're getting about nine grams of carbs as well as three grams of fiber. Um, but in context, um, a one cup of potatoes has about 30 grams of carbs in it. And corn has 38 grams of carbs. Even beets, like the lovely borscht base that is so wonderful this time of year, Mm. those are um, about 18 grams of carbs, but four grams of fiber in them. Peas, this is another one. So when we talk to like your standard North American person, the vegetables that they will eat are like peas, corn, and carrots, right? Carrots are the one that are demonized. Corn, we know, is actively a grain and high in carbohydrates, not a vegetable at all. And peas bring 26 grams of carbs in them. Granted, they are high in fiber, somewhere between 8 and 10 grams per cup. So they're very high fiber. But still, that still puts them on the same field as about beets, not carrots. So carrots are the lowest carb vegetable of that group, and yet they're the most demonized. I just don't get it. It drives me bananas. So angry. Bananas? Um, yeah. How many, how many carbs does, does About 30. Have? Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> Depending on the size of your banana. I, I do. Sp- We're talking Cavendish, right? <laughs> Big Mike. I spread the the gospel of corn is a grain whenever I can because it still cracks me up. Like how angry you got about that sometime. <laughs> Today we were talking about it with a friend. Excellent. I love it. I love it. Corn is a grain. We went to uh, an all-you-can-eat corn dinner Ooh. the other night because our church has grown like fancy corn to sell to provide money for their refugee settlement program, which is pretty cool. So they were advertising it by having this all-you-can-eat corn thing. And uh, a friend of ours messaged us afterwards and uh, she was also with the corn thing. It was like, it was pretty good for a vegetable. And I was like, I'll have you know, it's a green. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love it. Keep spreading the good word, Ashlyn. <laughs> corn is so good, though. Oh, it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. I love corn. It's just, it's a green. You just got to have it with that thumb-sized piece of butter. There you go. There you go. Now, now you've got it fixed. All right. So in conclusion, like all good essays written in the seventh grade. Therefore. Therefore. Hence. In summary. As I have made my points. Yes. So in the wanna, introduction, I set out to prove. Yes. So I want to make it clear that there's no food that is too high in sugar for people with diabetes to ever eat. I will say that portions are important in a lot of cases. There's a lot of individual things there, but there's nothing that's off the table. But most particularly for anybody, diabetes or not, there's no colorful vegetables that should be avoided due to sugar content. They are full of other nutrients, tons of fiber. They help you feel full and satisfied, which is a great thing to feel. And they generally help us feel our best. So if you can, eat them and stop worrying about the carrots. They're fine. There are so many myths about sexually transmitted infections. We're going to cover a few of them in today's game. It's going to be very exciting. Uh, These are all true or false questions, so you all have a 50% chance of getting each one right. Right. People of any age are at equal risk of getting an STI. Lauren. False. Uh, Are are we talking behavior matched? Yeah. I will actually say false as well. Hmm. I'm going to say true. False. Hmm. Of course, people of any age can contract STIs. However, in people with cervixes, which my phone wanted to autocorrect to crevices, which I found hilarious. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be cervixes or cervixes. Cervices. Cervices. I really love Don Quixote. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> okay. In people with cervices, before 20 or so, it doesn't produce as much protective fluid. So actually, adolescents are at greater risk for STIs if they're uh, having sex. And in addition, small tears in the vaginal wall are more common post-menopause due to a decrease in natural lubricants. So older folk are also at higher risk. Mm. Yeah, so, was, like I was going to guess that older folk are, are at higher risk. Yeah, I was surprised about the younger mm-hmm. ones as well. So the myth that you sometimes see is I'm too young to get an STI or I'm too old to get an STI. But actually, those are the worst times. Yeah. (laughs) Here's an easy one for you all. You can get STIs from oral sex. Jim. True. 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 It is amazing how many people do not think that this is true. Really? It is, in fact, very true. 
there is a lower risk. It is less likely to contract an STI from oral sex than vaginal or anal sex, but it is still extremely possible, especially HSV, herpes simplex virus, which Mm -hmm. is herpes. I assume most of us have that, right? We'll find out later. (laughs) (laughs) The most commonly passed on uh, through oral sex are herpes simplex, gonorrhea, and syphilis. So yeah, throat syphilis, not a good time. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, no kind of you... So something to keep in mind. But uh, I feel like it's something that is covered extensively in most health classes that you can uh, transmit any kind of uh, infection, any of the ways that people have sex, but it doesn't get passed on enough through, I guess, culture. It feels safer to have oral sex than to have other kinds of sex. Probably harder to pass it on with uh, with online sex. <laughs> That that's a stretch. <laughs> I don't know. You might get a computer virus. Oh, Jem. Jem goes for the 1990s joke. What, what do they call online sex again? Cyber sex. Cy- Cyber. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! You old. Like, yeah. <laughs> the idea that I couldn't come up with cyber <laughs> because I'm old. Like that's a 90s term if ever there was one. <laughs> do you remember the cartoon Cyber Six? Made me no. giggle every time. Yeah, it was a really good cartoon. So. True or false? Most people have herpes. False. True. True. Very true. Mm. Uh, Over 50% of adults have HSV-1, which used to be called oral herpes. uh, And about one in eight people has HSV-2, which used to be called genital herpes. Uh, At this point, the scales are balancing because it's very easy, again, through oral sex to transmit HSV-1 to your genitals or HSV-2 other ways, you know, the scales are balancing. It's beginning. That's why we no longer use oral herpes and genital herpes, pretty much. It's it's a term that's being phased out because it, it's becoming indistinguishable. If you've had a cold sore, yeah. you've got herpes. Yeah. <laughs> and in addition to being super, super common, it's really not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, most people will only have one or two outbreaks if they get any symptoms at all. It isn't curable, which I think in some people's minds gives it sort of a death sentence feeling. They think that like their sex lives are over. No one will ever want to be with them. Uh, they're going to be a pariah. And it's just, it's really not a big deal. If you don't cross off partners off your list because they have cold sores, you should take the same approach with anybody who has any sort of herpes virus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One issue, though, if a person is giving birth while having an outbreak, there's a greater chance that the baby will develop it in the mucous membrane in their eye. Well, that is why pretty much every baby in the developed world now gets uh, the eye wash as soon as they're born because they don't even ask or do tests or anything. They just give it to every baby who's born. So there's a good reason to medicalize birth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or make those things available to yeah. have your safe home birth or mm-hmm, whatever yeah. it happens to be, you know, just make those things, yeah, not like heavily prescribed need to be applied by a doctor or whatever no, it happens I'm, to be, right? Like I'm I would just think saying. facetious. Yeah. But yeah. Or I mean, bring the baby to the hospital a few days later and <laughs> yeah, well, baby checks are a thing. Do the heel prick, do all the, the good stuff. Do the paperwork. Yeah. It's a mild condition. It won't ruin your life. It's not a big deal. Don't stigmatize it. Mm. I think that that was one of those things that like the halitosis was medicalized because pharma came up with a drug to treat it and then started 
all sorts of ad campaigns about like genital herpes and how it's going to ruin your life to sell this these drugs. Yeah. I cannot remember where I heard that, but it was a podcast or something. I think it's also really convenient for people who want to scare people out of having sex. Oh, oh, yeah, it worked really well mm-hmm. in all those ways, but it was a thing before AIDS became so prevalent in the 70s and 80s. It was a way to use what some people use the threat of AIDS for now. And correct me if I'm wrong, is herpes is not generally transmissible when you're asymptomatic, right? Generally, but not completely. Right. The HPV vaccine, human papillomavirus, is essentially a cancer vaccine, so you can skip your pap test if you've gotten it. True or false? False. 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 Uh, so this was actually brought up on uh, the most recent episode of Sawbones. They talked extensively about the HPV vaccine. You should go check it out. It's pretty cool. Uh, but the true part of this question is that the HPV vaccine is essentially a cancer vaccine and you yeah. should get it. So currently you can get the HPV vaccine if you are between 9 and 45 years old. They have uh, greatly expanded the age range before you could only get it up to 25 or whatever. Even if you have been exposed to one or several versions of the HPV virus, the uh, like Gardasil, which is the most common yeah. version mm-hmm. of the HPV vaccine, has nine, I want to say, strains of um, the vaccine. So the ones most linked to cancer. It's still worth getting. Mm-hmm. All right, my next appointment. Yeah, there I you know. Go. I need to. I need to get on that. Everybody, mm-hmm. go get your Gardasil. It's a good time. Um, is it? Oh, is it expanded for men too now? Yes. Okay, good. Because yeah. for a long time it was women only, Anyone nine to and then men like at a certain age. And okay, yeah. cool. So right. everybody can go. The best time to get it is when you are young and haven't had uh, any sexual partners yet, uh, because that means you will be vaccinated against all of the strains that uh, commonly cause cancer which is pretty cool. Um, so the another part of the question is that in the future, it might actually be a lot less necessary to do pap smears because almost 100% of uh, cervical cancers are caused by the human papillomavirus. Wow. And if this vaccine continues to be as like widely uh, uptook, <laughs> yeah, it has wide coverage. I'm like, at this point in the sentence, I'm not sure she can pull this one out. <laughs> uh, if it if it continues to gain wide acceptance and use, it might become less necessary to have routine pap smears, which is pretty freaking cool. Wiped mm-hmm. out HPV. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and and cervical cancer. That's great. So go get your cancer vaccine, people. We live in the future. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, still. Yes. Yeah. All right. Any person living with HIV can transmit the virus to a sexual partner. Jim. Can. Yeah, that's the word that's throwing me too. I mean, transmission rates are actually like a lot lower than people assume. A can? True? I don't know. Like, like I feel, I feel like I should say false because, like, it seems. Like, true seems like the obvious thing. I'm going to say false, because at certain levels, I think you, like, you're basically not transmitting it anymore. Well, like, but can. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but I'm going to go with false on this. I'm also going to go false. False. So, yes, Mm -hmm. can is the operable word there, but the evidence is now in. 
if you are a person who's living with HIV, who is taking your antiretroviral therapy, and you have maintained an undetectable viral load for at least six months, it is now the scientific understanding that you cannot transmit HIV to your partners. And that is beautiful, right? Wow. Mm, it's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So it's not the sentence that it used to be, for mm -hmm. sure. It hasn't been that for a long time. But now it's to the point where you can, with extreme confidence, you know, be with people and not worry about infecting them. I think a lot of people, maybe of our generation and a little bit higher, their knowledge of HIV transmission rates and viral loads and things ended with rent. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> not saying it was a good thing i'm just saying that level of like sure. azt coming out and that might have been like where a lot of people stopped paying attention if it wasn't important in their life mm -hmm. stis on the whole not a big deal you can treat them like at this point getting most stis is equivalent to getting a sinus infection you treat it with antibiotics, take the whole package, people, so that we don't get any more super gonorrhea, because you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> but there should be no shame and no stigma involved, and we should all go get tested regularly and get our cancer vaccine. Uh, did, I don't know, did we have winners? <laughs> Congratulations, Lauren, on your perfect score. Woo! <laughs> well, Lauren and I each missed one. Uh, I would also like to say, as an owl educator our whole lives... If you have children in your life who need some really good comprehensive sex education, take them to your local Unitarian Universalist church. Or I believe the uh, United Church of Christ also does OWL programming because the program is super, super good. They will take kids from the surrounding neighborhoods, no problem. They want you and your children to learn about safer sex and relationships and all that good stuff. It's a completely secular program. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's age appropriate. Um, levels all the way up from like age four to yeah. like age 70 so you're never too old to learn what's appropriate <laughs> bring your kids bring your grandparents take a day of it everybody needs to know about sex and death there you go good days So why don't we uh, end today's show with that segment that uh, I've been wanting to bring back so far, not particularly successfully. <laughs> what have you all been reading or enjoying lately? Let's make Laura go first this time. No. She never has anything. I know I never have nothing. Well, we were out at Gimli the other weekend and where we were, there was no cell service. So and all I had on my phone was more Sherry S. Tapper books. And I realized that I react them differently when I was in my early 20s than when I now am in my late 30s. She wasn't as good as a writer as I thought she was. Oh. <laughs> and it's very second wave feminism. Yeah. Well, she was the director of Planned Parenthood uh -huh. for a while, and some of it is a little off-puttingly problematic. But still, from a nostalgic point of view, I can recognize the issues, but mm -hmm. realize what she was trying to do with the resources she had at her time. On a similar similar note, I recently reread the first book of the Chronicles of Pridane by Lloyd Alexander. Um, I would I would say it held up less well, probably, than Cherry Tepper. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, there is a lot of. Mm. I know it's a Bildungsroman. It's all about character development, but that Taryn is 
insufferable in that book. <laughs> and such a prick to the only female character. <laughs> so uh, I've got uh, I've got two that I want to bring up. First is a book. Uh, I've been reading Becky Chambers' most recent novella, um, To Be Taught If Fortunate. And it's uh, it's lovely so far. I'm uh, only about uh, a third of the way through, but uh, I I definitely give it a give it a recommend. It's about a uh, uh, kind of a survey team uh, near future, maybe eighty years in the future, hundred years in the future. Survey team uh, is out, just wakes from cryo sleep, not cry. He's close enough. Cyber sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and is, is surveying um, surveying uh, a, a new star system. Good character development, good writing. Uh, I like it. If you haven't read Becky Chambers, her Wayfarers trilogy is is quite good. Uh, I talked that up earlier in the in the podcast. And uh, I also, right before the MCAT, I took a day off work um, because I had already worked more than a full extra day that week anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, September is busy when you're in ed tech. You know, so I was doing some de-stressing little light studying, and I played through the video game uh, that came out recently called A Short Hike, and it was just truly lovely. Highly recommend it. It's out on um, Steam and Itch.io. Uh, it's about 10 bucks. Depending on how fast you blast through it, it's an hour and a half to three hours, maybe. And you just, you, you know, you're a little bird out for a hike up to the top of a mountain to get cell reception. You, you talk to people and you, you get little little quests and you just explore and it's it's got this this 3d pixel art aesthetic and it's just it's it was lovely i really enjoyed it it's fun it's low stress but you know it's not just a walking simulator if you're somebody you know i like those but if you're not somebody who's into those like there's mechanics and gameplay elements you know so a short hike nice adorable so while we were at Gimli with no cell reception, I read The City of Brass, which I uh, mentioned last time I was going to read. and I've it was wanting to read it. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, started on the second book in the trilogy now, so recommend that. Um, I've also uh, recently joined a committee on dismantling racism in the UU Church, uh, put on by the Canadian Unitarian Council. We're going to do some hard work, and I've been given homework, which I'm excited about. Currently on my Kindle, I have White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, and also The Reconciliation Manifesto by Arthur Manuel and Grand Chief Ronald Derrickson. So, two books about important topics that I am looking forward to digging into. Apparently, uh, White Fragility is also a like one and a half hour YouTube uh, video by Dr. Robin D'Angelo, if you would prefer to consume it in that format. Talking about how uh, we as white people should be less defensive when talking about issues of race. Have you thought of anything, Laura? No. It's been quite busy, and um, I just really haven't had a lot of time for any kind of fun reading. I can't read on the bus. I drive my car to work. I have to read work stuff at work. And then I am busy in the evenings, so I don't have time to read. <laughs> So what you're saying is that we should take your kids for an evening so you can sit down with a book. That would be good. But could you also get a house cleaner and cook and that kind of stuff? Because that's what I would normally do. Once they're do done at my time. house, they can come. <laughs> yeah, to exactly. Yours. 
I started listening to a new podcast called All Fired Up, which is two dietitians from Australia who are anti-diet dietitians, and so far it's been pretty good. So, yeah, that would be a good thing. Nice. With sweet accents to boot. Yes. Oh, and we finally finished uh, the FX series, You're the Worst. Oh, yeah, that was really good. We've been putting it off. Ugh. I've ne- I've never seen a TV series stick the landing like that before. Mm. It that's that's a it was recommendation. so it was the perfect ending, and it's crying so much. It's like <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, when that mountain goat song kicked in. Oh right yeah. At the end, <laughs> oh, I started bawling. It's weird that you get so emotional over that song. <laughs> like it makes yeah. me wonder. Jim, I've it's never listened to a mountain goat song in my life. He'll play it for you later. Yeah. Every time Jim talks about them, I'm like, I should probably, but no. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? So I thought it would be fun to cover a bunch of the different challenges that people and organizations have set up over the years to test pseudoscientific or paranormal claims. So there's quite a history of them. There's a Wikipedia list of like a hundred of them, which I was kind of surprised about. So we're going to pick a few and cover those. Sounds like fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Congrats, Jim, on writing the MCAT. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yeah. I gotta wait till October to get my score, but... Oh, uh, October what? First. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. I, I still have to write Casper, uh, which is a week and a half. Woo. We'll see. It's a weight off your chin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe my voice is a little less muffled this uh, this episode because my, my big bushy MCAT beard has been shorn. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. Good night. Thanks for hosting. Bye. (laughs) Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. super gay thing i'm making you're listening to life the universe and everything else today on the show we talk medical myths today on the show we bust some medical myths today on the show medical myths <laughs> jem is back in charge <laughs> <laughs> my name is jem newman and with me today i have lauren bailey hello ashlyn noble hello and laura creek newman hi there <laughs> hi there it was fine now do it in the barbie voice (laughs) hi there that's the one i'm using (laughs) hi ken want to go for a ride my kids love that song it's hilarious it's terrible but it's funny we've covered several for you <laughs> we've covered several medical myths we've covered several <laughs> why do we even do this <laughs> to torture ourselves <laughs> so we can learn something new every month and i'm going to be talking about the fact that sex happens so you know if you don't want your children exposed to such lies
get rid of them now. <laughs> 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 I couldn't figure out how to end the sentence. <laughs> I knew that was wrong. <laughs> anthroposophy. By anthroposophic medicine. Anthroposophy, anthroposophic medicine. Anthroposophy, anthroposophic medicine. Yeah, I think that's how you do it. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Told you it was a bummer. That's okay, we got Ian's upbeat upbeat music to to fade up right right about now. We eat rock with almost every meal. Salt. So I'm one of those people who will always do the hard C in Latin. Mm Mm-hmm. And I will usually do the W instead of the V mm-hmm. as well, even though it sounds very silly and pretentious. Mm-hmm. And I applaud you for not doing that. Yep, I wasn't about to do that. <laughs> Winnie Weedy Weechie. Winnie Weedy Weechie, <laughs> that's the one I know. <laughs> it's generally due to the person chewing and consuming their own hair. These tend to develop over a long period of time, um, and they're actually pretty difficult to treat and, and get rid of. They usually require surgery, so they're pretty bad. Uh, I feel like Drano usually just cleans that right out. No, it doesn't. You complain all the time about how you put the drain cleaner down, and it didn't get rid of the mat of hair, so whatever, Newman. It's always stuck on that plug thing. In one case, the person had consumed a very large amount of sunflower seeds, including the shells, as well as a big wad of gum. And so the shells got stuck in the gum and it became like a porcupine-like thing. (laughs) You eat the shells? Yeah. Ah, Yeah, that's how I always ate them. I don't want to spit stuff out. That's gross. Exactly. By all rights, I should be totally horrified by sunflower seeds, but I love them. I also... Peanuts in the shell, too. <laughs> I eat watermelon, right? Peanuts in the shell is quite dangerous, I think. Peanuts right. makes more sense to me than sunflower seeds. Like, the shells are so pointy and yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah they're sometimes. unpleasant. It hurts sometimes. You're <laughs> 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 <It's> so ridiculous. <laughs> you married him. You're passing his genes on I your know. children. I know. I know. Don't remind me. <laughs> Take them to your local Unitarian church. You want to drop the other you in there? No. It kills take, me. Take them to your local Unitarian Universalist church. Why do you think your mommy or daddy are always telling you, don't put that in your mouth? Let's find out. Hi, Hi. kids. Why are we on television anyway? We're here to tell a little story about why you shouldn't put things into your mouth when you don't know what they are, and why you should never take anything a stranger tries to give you. Why not? Because if you ate somebody else's medicine, some bad food, or some poison, you could get very sick. Ugh! <gasps> want to be sick and that's why before you eat anything you should always ask someone you love if it's okay okay i love you can i eat the guitar no but but you can help me sing a song about eating things that don't belong inside you okay i wasn't really hungry anyway well wait maybe a little bit okay everybody if you see something that you want to eat before you do anything remember this song don't you put it in your mouth don't you put it in your mouth don't you stuff it in your face don't stuff it in your face Though it might look good to eat Though it might look good to eat And it might look good to taste And it might look good to taste You could get sick Yuck! Real quick Yuck! Real sick Real Yuck! Don't you put it in your mouth Uh-uh Till you ask someone you love That's right, sis If 
strike a muffin or a beat. If you don't know just what it is, remember, boys and girls, don't put it in your mouth. Hey, what am I doing? I don't even like beats. And don't put it in your mouth. Bye-bye, everyone. everyone.